Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Revelation chapter 7 opens the gates of heaven and lets us see inside. We get a glimpse of the saints who are very much alive. And John, the author of this mysterious letter, helps us to understand the nature of sainthood. And he sees in this vision a great crowd of people from different countries and different times all huddled around a throne. And so he sees your family and he sees the people that you love whom you cannot see anymore because they're face to face with their maker. But he knows that they're there. And he has this great vision of the saints that I want to speak about uh, tonight. And you may know that the New Testament applies the label of saint in a very liberal way. It isn't just to people that are extremely successful in their piety. The word saint is given to all believers in Jesus. And uh, I want to learn something about sainthood and your own personal canonization from Revelation 7 tonight. And I want to focus on two things, though I could focus on like 18. But let's keep it simple. Two things. Um, Saints, saints are people who have made room in their lives for an imposing chair and for a basin of blood. Saints are people that have made room in their lives for an imposing chair and a basin of blood. Uh, So let me say something about the imposing chair. It's fascinating that Revelation 7 spends so much time, in fact, mentions it in total four times, the furniture of heaven. It finds this very interesting and really wants you to know something about the throne room of the Almighty. So I want you to read along with me um, in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So in Revelation 7, we see the command center of the universe. I mean, that's the vision, right? You're getting a glimpse of who is in charge and who is responding to the one who is in charge. Um, And And it's not uh, surprising that heaven has furniture, especially a throne, because in the Old Testament, very often heaven itself, all of heaven, is called the throne of Yahweh, the throne of God, whereas the earth is considered the footstool of God, right? So God is in both places, but the seat of his authority, of his unchallenged, undiminished, unthwartable rule and reign is heaven. And earth will eventually match that unthwarted status, but not yet, right? So heaven is God's throne in the Old Testament. And I think it's a, it's a helpful image, a helpful symbolic image, uh, because of what a throne represents. 
And it doesn't just represent this in the ancient world, it represents this in any given monarchy or monarchical government. A throne represents the highest authority or the person who holds the highest authority. And that's why the throne is set aside for very particular and special people. Speaking of bishops, I once made the grave mistake in the cathedral at Pittsburgh. Uh, we were all very tired after a long walk through the city and I saw a very large chair in the front of the church and it had a funny looking hat on it and it looked like a shepherd's staff was on it. And I'm like, well, I'm tired and that looks comfortable. So I just sat down and somebody said, Ethan, you really shouldn't sit there. Like that's the bishop's chair. I didn't know, I mean, it looked good. Well, anyway, I don't think it affected me, but uh, the point is that chair was set aside for somebody with authority, right? Well, even more so in a monarchy, uh, the chair is set aside, that particular throne is set aside for the person who holds the most authority. So it doesn't belong to a gamer or somebody who works at Wendy's, though, God bless them, um, or, or somebody who, uh, you know, sells CBD oil or somebody who teaches, uh, you know, uh, French. I mean, it's not for them. Instead, it's for the monarch who reigns over all of those people. Um, and so it's for the person who holds the highest authority, but the chair also represents stability. You notice God isn't here portrayed as riding on a chariot, though he is in other books of the Bible. That suggests that, that God is omnipresent and everywhere, that image, the image of the chariot or God on wheels, right? That's found in the book of Ezekiel. But here he is seated in an immovable place. And the idea is that the throne represents physical stability. And when you have the most powerful person sitting in the most powerful place that is seated, stable, that image is supposed to connotate uh, security. So when the king is in his seated position, all is right with your country. That's the understanding. That's why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, at the place of, of, of royal dominion. And so in John's vision, uh, we see that God owns furniture, owns a throne. And it, this is meant to send a message to us that the highest reality sits in the place of highest authority. And therefore, the center of all being is stable and just. Now, I want you to think of how bizarre that is. How would anyone looking at the world conclude that? I mean, have you watched the news? Are you paying attention to the election cycle or what you're posting about the election cycle? Like, we've become a little bit crazy. Uh, and, and, it, and we are crazy because we live in the midst of a crazy world that is constantly creating destabilization. And there are always scandals and controversies that are bubbling up to the surface. And it looks like nothing is just and nothing is stable. Uh, and yet, we have this image that at the center of all things is being, holy being, seated, creating a just and perfected heaven, a righteous place. I think this revelation throws a wrench in the the philosophical system of people like Feuerbach. He was a philosopher who taught that all religion is simply people projecting their own human experience onto the heavens, right? Well, how could this be the case when heaven is a perfect government and we experience everything but that? Instead, this isn't a matter of speculation. This is a matter of revelation. Somebody had a revelation that at the center of everything was stability. That's genius. That goes against the grain. That goes against our intuition and against our experience. 
And so we believe this insight really is from God, that, uh, that all of the politicians and princes and princesses and czars and czarinas that sit on little Ikea thrones, they're all terrific, but they're all going to fade uh, because there is one King of Kings and Lord of Lords that has more authority and justice who sits above those people, who sits on the rock that is higher than I, so to speak. And this is the brilliance of, of Jewish and Christian theology that the king, whoever the king or the president or the premier is, whoever they are, they do not embody divinity. This was very clear in Israelite theology. Most ancient religions believed that their leader was divine. Israel said, nah, we know these boys too well. That whatever they are, they're not divine. God stands over and above them and reigns and rules over them in perfect justice. And we see that just throne room of heaven in this passage. And this creates, in Revelation 7, a profound response from all of the saints. Notice what the saints do when they're in the presence of the throne. When they see him who sits upon the throne. They don't stay silent and they don't run in defiance. Instead, they acknowledge the rightness of the one who sits on the throne. And they start publicly professing how he has saved them and the world. And in fact, the other beings of heaven, angels, elders, and the four living creatures, whatever they are, what do they do? They're all captured in the moment and they hear the praises of people and start praising themselves. And then they all join in this uh, chorus, this beautiful chorus. And they say, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. In other words, God is due all of this praise and he's not just due all of this praise right now, but for all eternity. This is a place of stable rule and reign, and the people are reflecting that in their praises. And so that's what saints do. Saints acknowledge the furniture of heaven. Saints acknowledge the throne, and they bow down happily before that which is supreme. They acknowledge God as God. And this demonstrates that there's something about saints it shows that they've lost the satanic venom or are losing the satanic venom. What do I mean by the satanic venom? Well, the satanic venom uh, was, was present, of course, in the original uh, fallen malevolent one, right? In Isaiah 14, uh, we believe that Satan, in some mysterious way, is portrayed as a monarch who is leading a revolt against God. And this little monarch says about God and his throne, I will raise myself up higher than the heavens. Like, I will take dominion over all dominion. I will rule and reign from the throne. And eventually this king, this princeling, is cast down to the earth. Well, that satanic virus of seeking to supplant God was present in Adam and Eve, right? They didn't fall into debauchery. They had an upward fall toward divinity. They weren't content in being creatures. They wanted in some way uh, to be equal with God or at least equal to God's knowledge. This happens at Babel as well, where we decide to construct a ziggurat into the heavens to have more authority than was gifted to us by virtue of creation. But these saints are losing that venom, that virus, that power. Instead, they are acknowledging God as God. And because of that, they're totally free. And when you know your limits, by the way, your good limits as a creature of God, 
when you don't have to be in control, when you don't have to be number one, when you don't have to win the argument, when you don't have to know all the gritty details, when you don't have to have the last word, you're free. You're free. When you don't have to have dominion over everything, you're free. Because you were created as a creature without any of those responsibilities. And so the saints acknowledge God as God and cry out in a loud voice. And so my question to us tonight is simply this. Do we have any room at all for the furniture of heaven? Do we have room for the furniture of heaven? That is for an imposing, lofty throne. Because I think for fallen people, and that is what we certainly are, that's a very difficult revelation. A lofty throne is a difficult revelation because it demotes, by necessity, it demotes our most treasured values. Because all of us are attached to little tin gods. You know, all of us are trying to supplant Yahweh on the throne. We have different ways of doing it. But we put our causes on a throne. We put our leaders on a throne. We put our authors on a throne. We put our governments on a throne. We put our achievements on a throne. We put our victimhood on a throne. We can put anything on a throne. How great we are, how terrible we feel. Our friends, our spouses, our children, their reputations, all of it on the throne. In fact, I was having a conversation with uh, one of you who was trying to grapple with a divided loyalty. So on the one hand, uh, you you thought, I have this boss, and I I, I have a long history with this person, and I want to be loyal to my boss, whom I really believe in, but he's imperfect. And then I have this committee that I'm working with, and that's been very challenging, and some of them are great, and some of them are a little crazy. But I want to be loyal to the committee, and the committee and the boss are not getting along right now. So who am I to be loyal to? How do I measure out my loyalty? Is it 60% in one direction and 40 in the other? I mean, how do I do this? And then you had an epiphany. My job is not to be loyal principally to either one of those groups. My chief loyalty is to God's truth. And if I'm loyal there, it will help me understand how I can best be loyal in those given contexts. And isn't that good? I mean, don't you understand? I mean, how important that is in your own life, right? And it's when we confuse the highest loyalty with those lesser loyalties that things get befuddled in our lives and start to come undone. And so I think the throne room is threatening because it demotes our other competing loyalties. But I also think the throne room of God is difficult for us because it spells our doom. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, how do you fare? before the eyes of scrutiny? How do you fare before undefiled justice? I mean, are you good people? Do you keep your promises? Do you keep your mouth shut when you should? Are you free from gossip? I mean, how have you behaved in this political season? Have you restrained yourself? Have you listened more than you've spoken? Do you keep the secrets that people entrust to you? Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you working at it? Are you getting better? Are you improving? Can other people see Jesus in you? I mean, all these, I'm trying to lay guilt on you. Do you understand? Yeah. yeah, right? I mean, how are you faring right now? Because that's what the throne room of God would require. Because in the throne room of God, everything is just, everything is righteous, everything is complete. Everything has to accord with the shalom of heaven. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. And so that's why the imposing chair, if that's all we had, we would break under the weight of the conception, let alone the reality. So we need something more than an imposing chair. We need a basin of blood. And thankfully, a basin of blood is provided. This is verse 13. 
Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now in Revelation 7, uh, we, we see that the author is not only interested in furniture, but interested in fashion. Uh, he mentions the clothing of the saints three times in this passage, both the color as, and the style. They are wearing white robes, but white robes that were not originally white, but were caked with mud, that were filthy, grimy, but they've been made clean by a particular and unique detergent, and that detergent is blood. Now, I want you to notice how strange that image is, and it's meant to grab our attention that the only thing that can make defiled people undefiled in the presence of God is blood. And I also want you to note what unites this wildly diverse crowd. It's not age, and it's not language, and it's not race. What unites this crowd is they are all wearing the same garment. They're all wearing white robes that have been made white by the blood. And notice, it's a specific sort of blood, lamb's blood. Now, there's a long and complex history behind those words. In fact, I would argue that the Bible is in many ways a chronicle of sacrificial blood. It's a history of blood. But let me just get into it a little bit. I'll summarize the history very briefly. You have Adam and Eve who are exiled from paradise. And what does God give them as a gift to prepare them for that exile? Animal skins. Not so subtly suggesting that the first deaths in the Edenic protectorate were these animals who were skinned, killed, to clothe the first pair. And then you have Cain and Abel, their children. Cain offers salad to God, and God wisely rejects the salad. Um, Abel, that was good. Abel, on the other hand, um, brings an offering of blood. As a shepherd, he brings the blood, and God accepts that offering. Later, Abraham makes a blood sacrifice or covenant of sorts. He does a weird ritual where he cuts animals in half, and all of a sudden, God appears as a blazing torch and moves through the blood, through those animals making an irreversible covenant with Abraham, saying essentially, if I ever break my vow to you, may I, Yahweh, be cut up, just like these animals were. And then we have, of course, Passover, where God instructs the Israelites, in light of the looming threat of the angel of death, to paint their doorposts with blood, the blood of a lamb. And then later, the Ark of the Covenant, which is also known as God's throne, in the Old Testament is sprinkled, sprayed with blood of a lamb, covering the golden lid, suggesting that the nation could have their sins covered by such a ritual. And then in Isaiah 53, the prophet looking forward to this messianic figure uh, sees that this suffering entity, which will leak out blood that will purify people, is not so much a lamb, but a person, that somebody will be devastated for our sins and our iniquities. Somebody will be crushed and bruised and destroyed. So Isaiah portrays the lamb as a person. That's a very brief sketch of the biblical history for the blood. And I realize the biblical reasoning for the blood involves some sacred mystery, but it's not altogether mysterious, nor is it altogether unknowable. It goes something like this. This is the theology behind all of this stained history. The throne, meaning ultimate authority and justice, is designed, that is, God is self-designed, to obliterate sin. 
In other words, the arc of history always tilts toward justice. God hates sin into non-being because it is killing everything that he loves. And yet, this word is unnervingly devastating for us too, because who among us is just? But the sacrificial system of the Old Testament indicates that an exchange is permitted by heaven. In other words, an innocent entity can be swapped for a guilty one. And this blood enactment is offered constantly in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple where people offer lambs, unblemished lambs, perfect little animals in their guilty stead. So therefore, sin is visually punished by the death of the animal, but the sinner is freed from the wrath and justice. Well, why am I saying all this? Because Jesus grew up with this chronicle of blood. He learned it from his parents, he learned it from the scriptures, and he felt it in his gut. And he even received a unique nickname from his rather complex cousin, John the Baptist, who called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there was something growing in Jesus of Nazareth where he knew that his ultimate purpose in life was not to tell interesting stories or offer the world confusing paradoxes that we're still trying to figure out or make miracle cures, but instead was to become the devastation that the Old Testament was pointing to, that he would be the human lamb. He would be the one to offer up his body, his flesh, his blood for the health of the world. And that by doing so, he could absorb the spiritual toxicity and guilt of humanity and free us, free us from God's rightful condemnation, from being written off by God. And not only did he think that this was his task, he knew that it was, and then he went and did it. He went and died and offered his life for us. And so when God shows us ultimate love, ultimate love, he doesn't give us a gift basket or money or a poem Paradoxically enough, if he wants to show us how much he loves us, he gives us his blood, the blood of the God-man. And blood in the Bible is something like soul detergent. And this is why saints, from a biblical perspective, saints are not unshipped crystal or stainless vases. We are people of pollution. All saints are polluted people. All saints are polluted. We are God-hating, human-resenting, thieving, addicting, uh, gossiping, lying, obsessive, self-inflated, hell-bent sinners who have the strangest encounter with redeeming love. Redeeming love that meets us on the way to the pit and says, you're mine now, and turns us around in a different direction and inspires new thoughts and new love and new abilities and new capacities within us. But the love finds us and then creates loveliness within us. And we are cleansed by blood, cleansed by sacrificial love that takes the form of blood. This is what's offered for you and for me in the basin of blood and revelation. That's what makes a saint, you know. A saint is somebody who has been sanctified by blood. Well, I have a friend named Kevin Martin, and we're friends on Facebook, so it's real. Um, and he, he was a minister at a massive Episcopal church in the 1970s. But it was one of those churches where it got too burdensome. You know, the, the administrative machine ate him up. That can happen. You know. 
and he was, uh, his world was blackened with depression. And at one point, he was so depressed and so crushed that he wrote a hasty letter to his vestry, immediately resigning from office, and then wrote a letter to his wife and his children saying that he would never see them again. And he got in his Buick, and he drove up to Newfoundland, Canada, without anybody knowing where he was. And he got this job as a logger in, in Canada during winter. Um, and he rented this small metal trailer. Uh, and he would, he would live there. And it was heated at night by a, a very, very small metal heater. And at one evening, when it was 20 below outside, the heater stopped working. And at that point, he just broke down. And in a rage, he went over to the heater, picked it up in both of his hands, and chucked it out the window. Then realizing that that was a rather stupid thing to do when it was 20 below. And so he throws himself on the ground and starts pounding the floor of this small metal trailer. And he starts, as he's pounding on the floor, staring up at heaven, saying, I hate you. I hate you. Get out of my life. I am done with this Christian game. It's over. And he fell to the ground in this fetal position. And he says, he writes, I couldn't even cry. I was too exhausted to cry. And then Kevin writes this. As I laid there, I heard crying and heaving breaths, but they were not coming from me. Instead, in the bright darkness of faith, I heard Christ crying and heaving away on the cross. And then I knew the blood was for me, for the Kevin who was the abandoner, the reckless wanderer, the blasphemer of heaven. And then the words rose up all around me. The words said, Kevin, I am with you and I'm for you, and you will get through this, I promise you. What happened? Kevin had a visitation from God. Kevin discovered a Christ who knew what he was feeling, who knew what he had done, and who drew closer to him rather than run away, uh, who wanted him in that place, and who pledged never to let him go. And in that moment, Kevin rose to his feet, got into his car, sped back home, and reconciled with his family and his church, and then went on to lead one of the best Episcopal churches in that decade. How? He discovered that there is power in the blood. There's power in the blood. He's not the first one to have discovered it. St. Francis knew that there was power in the blood. Right? Thomas Cranmer, the author of this liturgy, found out in a deep way that there was power in the blood. John Wesley found out that there was power in the blood. To quote him, for me, even me. And you have discovered in one way or another that there are deeper revelations for you to come, that there is power, power, wonder-working power, and the precious blood of the Lamb. And so we have this lofty chair and this basin of blood. I want you to think just for a moment about how strikingly different those images are. Lots of contrast between those two images, right? The throne signifies unchallenged might and justice. The world set at perfect equilibrium. The blood, 
on the other hand, symbolizes unconditional mercy of notoriously compromised thugs. These images seem diametrically opposed. The throne is lofty, the blood is lowly. The throne is a picture of power, the blood is a picture of weakness. One is threat, the other is grace. What on earth can connect or reconcile these two images? Here's what connects them, and it's right there in the book of Revelation. The same DNA is found upon the throne and within the basin, and it is the DNA of the Lamb, because we learn that it is the Lamb that is seated on the throne, and it is the Lamb's blood that is in the basin. The same DNA is found in both places, and so the person who holds all power and justice and might is the same person who said, I'm willing to suffer and to hurt so you don't have to suffer and hurt. And it's all reconciled, and that's why we sing that hymn all the time that, that goes something like this, and you know the words, some of you do, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide, Grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Now, two applicatory words that I'm done. The first word, saints delight in the throne. We delight in the throne because the throne of God means that no matter what is happening in our crazy world, there is ultimate justice and accountability and that evil will most certainly be obliterated. The throne reminds us that the despots and braggadocious presidents and politicians and kings of our age will be overthrown, and that is a certainty. And they will be judged by heaven with more justice than they can bear. And so will we. But we delight in the throne, and there's a sweet edge to the justice of God because it means that I'm not number one and I never have to be. I'm not the sovereign of the universe, even my little sphere of the universe, my little piece of the puzzle, not under my control. No, I have a, a very, very small responsibility. Um, I'm not number one, I don't have to be. The other sweet side of the justice of the throne is that it prepares us for the blood. Because when you know that there's no hope in ultimate justice for yourself, you run to the blood. So saints delight in the throne of God because God's justice is good, but saints also delight in the blood. We delight in the blood. And friends, it saddens me so much that a growing portion of the church has become hemophiliacs. They're afraid of the blood. I have heard so many sermons lately. I think I listened to them for schadenfreude, right? The, the, the pleasure you can get from hearing painful things. Um, yeah. We've bought into this new and seductive idolatry, which goes something like this. Uh, yes, we do need to be saved after all, but salvation does not mean redemption from the toxicity of sin and from hatred of God and other people. Instead, salvation means self-acceptance. Salvation means looking at yourself in the mirror and adoring everything that you see. I think that's extremely, extremely dangerous because what it indicates, not so subtly, is that God has changed his zip code. He has moved from the throne and from the basin into the individual psyche. And so whatever you find within yourself is God. Let me say this. That is, in fact, probably the worst kind of idolatry that could be created. The worship of self over all other things. The adoration of self at the cost of all other things. And a hemophiliac or an anemic Christianity is not Christianity at all. It will eventually just become another law. Do this, 
avoid that, love yourself, love yourself more, and create an echo chamber of people who will tell you that you're not doing anything wrong ever. That's what a church turns into when it loses the blood. And a church without the blood loses its power. It just creates a, a kingdom of Jabba the Huts, self-engrossed, self-serving, self-suffocating, toxified monsters. That's the danger of self-adoration without realizing that the self is both beautiful and terrible, but it's both. Are there beautiful things in you? Yes, and God will continue to make them beautiful. But are there terrible things that run concurrently with beautiful things? Absolutely, and that's why Christ had to die and not just teach. And so saints need the throne and saints need the blood. The throne prepares us for the blood and the blood prepares us to yield to the throne, right? So in worship, we're rehearsing these insights tonight. We are rehearsing heaven, if you will, because we confess our sins. What does that mean? We're acknowledging the throne. And then we hear of and then partake in the blood. That is, we are bathed in the loving righteousness of Christ for you. So how are you made a saint? How am I made a saint? Because we've mastered our problems, because we fixed our families, because we gained some ground, because we lost some weight, because we got smarter, because we finally stabilized after all these years? Not at all. You friends have been canonized and sainted and sanctified by raw, untidy grace, period. It is all because of the blood. And the blood actually has the power to make us strong. When you know that you're loved, when you're really secure, it's like when you were raised in a good family. You know, you can really tell when somebody was raised in a family where love was very evident and present because they're resilient. They can handle things. They've, they've learned that there's nowhere I can go to escape love, that I'm loved and secure. And that can make you love yourself in a holy way and love other people in a holy way and yield to the throne happily, realizing that you are the most free when you say, I give up over to you. Yeah. Uh, and so, friends, uh, we tonight carry with us our sainthood. And we will carry that sainthood with us because of the blood right into the throne room of God, where all things at last will be made well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.